Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Additionally, this episode's reading carries a content warning for brief, non-graphic description of vomiting. If that's something that you'd like to skip out on, you can skip ahead 8 minutes and 10 seconds to the 13-minute mark from the start of the reading. Welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bismiecks. Listeners, I'm super excited to introduce to you a new friend for you and me, Dee Holloway. Dee, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, full disclosure, when we before we get going at all, like, you just emailed me because uh you know i've i've done work with other authors from your publisher before uh so i imagine that probably Catherine was like hey maybe tales from the trunk but uh other than that like this is the first time we're meeting so we're gonna have some good radio going i hope so i can't remember if she suggested it um she suggested a few um likelies to reach out to, but I've listened to some of the episodes and I just, I like the concept because yeah. I have a lot of trunked material and I know that everybody does, like there's not an author out there that doesn't have, isn't sitting on an iceberg basically. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really great um, angle, I guess. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, you know, listeners, if you also are, are sitting on a whole bunch of trunked material, you could email me, you know. Hit me up on on the Twitters while it's still there. Uh, th- this is coming out in, in a week and two days, so Twitter will probably still be there if you're listening to this on, on release day. But, you know, who knows? Hit me up, uh, because I'm always, always happy to have new guests. Uh, Dee, we're going to be hearing from... Uh, we... we Definitely do want to talk about your uh, forthcoming work, but right now we're going to be hearing from River's End. Is there anything we need to know before we go in or any content warnings? Um, content warnings. Actually, yes. They're, the scene that I picked has um, a little bit of vomit. Okay. Not anything graphic, um, <laughs> but if you have like um, um, what's it, immunophobia, I believe Maybe. that's the one, yeah. Uh, I liked this scene when I wrote it, and I like it <laughs> now, but it, I mean, some people do have a, an issue with that, very understandably. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you will have already, at this point, listeners heard a uh, note of what timestamp you can skip to if you want to miss that. So, River's End was um, a full-length young adult manuscript, which was the first book that I seriously queried to agents um, at a time when I thought that I could find an agent and that I wanted to find an agent and have like some kind of a traditional publishing career. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, after, you know, a a good amount of time, I think probably (laughs) at least 40 no's, I was like, all right, probably time to move on to something else. Yeah. But I still really do like it. I have a lot of fondness for the story as it stands by itself, but also because of what came out of it. Um, it was the first of um, lots of projects mm-hmm. that are set in a slightly magical version of Florida, which is where I'm from. Oh, nice. And so there's a lot of like my hometown in it and the landscapes that I grew up in and, you know, certain landmarks. Um, and it kind of just for it was the launching point for a universe that I have returned to mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of different ways and sold some stories out of short fiction 
Nice. Um, the the book that I have coming out in July is technically part of that <laughs> universe <laughs> in a very, you know, the way that, that authors develop um, mm-hmm. some kind of lore for the, the universes that they return to, whether those are high fantasy or science fiction or, yeah. in this case, um, very low fantasy. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm excited to dig into some of that after the reading. So, from River's End. The weather-beaten planks of the dock beneath her bare feet were as familiar to Callie as salt air, or the flavor of the soda bread her father's mother made on St. Patrick's Day. Mm. She'd learned to swim before she could walk, and half her childhood had been spent cannonballing off the various family docks into the rivers or the lake. Just now, the distance between the pylons and the water of the Cocoa River, maybe two feet, felt like miles. Once in diving practice, she'd come out of a tuck too early and hit the pool surface flat on her back. The water, usually cradling and open, amniotic in its comfort, had dappled bruises over her spine and hips. Would it accept her now, after she'd been away for so long? Maybe it would turn to ice or sink away, leaving only the river bottom, the moment her hands met waves. She drew a breath and jumped gracelessly. For a few minutes, it seemed like everything would be okay. Her limbs remained her own, her will controlling them to move her through the water, away from the dock. She pushed out into the river, stroking through the sun-warmed water. She wasn't sure whether the dampness on her face was from her splashing or from tears. She'd missed the dank river scent in her nose, the droplets prickling in her hair, the faint brackish burn in her eyes. She dove down beneath a small wake from a passing boat, and shouted, I'm sorry, into the liquid dark, the words muffled and distant. Whether there was anything in the river to receive her apology was up for debate. She was crying now beneath the surface in a world where tears were just more liquid, a teaspoon more saline than the river had been previously. Hmm. As she surfaced, a storm came up suddenly, as storms tended to do in coastal Florida. Wind whipped across the river, a hard west wind that churned the water into whitecaps. Callie turned over, lifting her chin from the water as she moved into a backstroke, her face open to the pelting rain. The scent of the wind reminded her of a day she stood on Mel's dock with her aunt and her grandmother, watching a storm unfurl on the horizon. Mel had murmured that west winds bring change, and her voice had a ring of recitation, something formal being imparted. The river convulsed as she strove for the dock, the waves beating and vicious around her head. The slight lilt of the river's current turned harsh and dragged at her legs, foaming crests licking her skin and twisting around her shoulders. She went under. Breath exploded from her lungs as she slammed into a pylon and scrabbled at the wood. A crab trap clipped her leg. In the darkening water, a deeper shade flowed out, clouding and dispersing in crimson tendrils. Callie surged up sucking in water despite her best efforts, and clawed her way onto the dock. Lightning cracked nearby and thunder in nearly the same moment, but her body was let in on the dock, limbs wrung out from exertion. The water she swallowed forced its way back up her throat, bringing with it a ripple of convulsions. Her arms and legs thrashed on the dock, drawing splinters, and she shoved herself up as her stomach wrenched. On hands and knees, she coughed and spat, Water mixed with blood joined the rain on the dock. In the mess, there gleamed a small, dark object. A stone she'd swallowed? A chunk of flotsam? Wincing as blood smudged her hands, she picked it up. A shark's tooth sat on her palm. Her Aunt Mel was in the nursery's office when Callie came looking for her, rummaging in a file cabinet. She looked up when Callie came in and made no comment about her knees dripping on the rug. Hey, get caught in that storm? came up pretty fast. Then Callie saw her eyes register the swimsuit and bare feet. Everything okay? Mm-hmm. Callie sat down on a patch of tile uncovered by the rug and held her hand out to her aunt. Do you know what this is? Mel set her fingers on Callie's wrist, turning her hand but not touching the tooth. Shark tooth. You find that in the river? Bull sharks sometimes swim in from the pass. She didn't ask what Callie herself had been doing in the river, especially during a terrific storm. Callie curled her fingers around the tooth until its tip bit into her flesh. She had no words for its finding, as though when it erupted from her gut, it had left a blockage 
or ripped away her vocal cords. Hmm. Mel went about her business, closing the file cabinet and gazing out toward the vegetable garden, the rows of young palms, and the small collection of ornamental gazebos. She wore her rusty red hair, the only thing that gave her and Callie away as Ken in a long braid. Bits of it frizzed out from heat and movement. She dressed plainly, usually in cutoffs and a couple of tank tops. But Callie thought Mel looked like she'd grown out of the same ground the nursery was planted in. <laughs> she had a hard time imagining Mel as a kid in the ancestral house with her mother. Fiona had been perfectly put together, straight-toothed and friendly and precise. Even photographs of her fishing at age 12 on Callie's grandfather's boat showed a miniature lady. Most of the pictures of Mel as a kid were blurred, Mel turning from the camera or reaching toward it. <laughs> the ones which depicted her aunt in stillness revealed a child and then a teenager, always wide-eyed, slightly disheveled, perpetually uncomfortable. Now and then, Callie wondered if her mother had really liked her as a person, the way Mel seemed to. How successfully had Fiona's attempts to make Callie in her own image turned out? When had Mel grown into herself? Callie hated to think it would take her years to become comfortable with this new awareness, just when she thought she was good with who she was. Mel waited for her to speak, tapping now and then at the desktop's keyboard, her eyes settling occasionally on Callie as though she wasn't anything to be corralled or feared. Hmm. Callie thought of her mother's mode of conversing. A friendly tack here, a winking tack there, a mild threat, a plea, until Callie unspooled. Hmm. She didn't believe she'd have been able to tell Fiona this heavy thing, not if her mother had prodded all day. Then again, hindsight was twenty twenty, and hindsight proved that Fiona had never been as forthcoming as she liked her daughter to be. Hmm. She wanted to trust Mel. Mel was good to her. Mel was just friendly enough, not too cool, busy and independent and all the things Callie wanted to be. And Mel had taken her in. Mel had given her the worst news of her life, both halves of it, snuggled together like holding hands. Hmm. The tooth seemed larger than she thought a bull shark's tooth should be. She'd seen enough of them cold up on the riverbanks. They tended to collect in the gravel of inland springs as well, funneled in through Lake George and the St. John's River for kids to search for and coo over though nothing was supposed to be taken home from a state park. Most of the teeth were dime-sized or smaller. This one made a V-shaped blotch against the skin of her hand, nearly four inches around. Finally, her swimsuit dry and chafing, she stood up and dropped the tooth on the side desk next to Mel's elbow. Her aunt looked at it and then up at Callie. I think you should keep your hands on that. Callie froze, her eyes darting between the tooth and Mel's calm gaze. What nerve she had left after her dip in the river failed her. She snatched the tooth up and bolted. Hmm. Yeah. Ooh, that's <laughs> lovely. Well, thank you. I hadn't looked at it in years. <laughs> <laughs> but it was kind of fun to, to open that file again. Yeah. No, that uh there's generally like there's two ends of the spectrum when people bring something they haven't looked at in years. There's either like oh, this is actually pretty good, or like, ooh, yeesh, and like, nothing in between. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's really, uh, it's heartening to me to hear uh, what you were saying before we got into the reading about, you know, this being uh, sort of like a shared, shared universe sort of thing, um, that coalesces around the place where you grew up uh, because that's something that, like, I definitely wrote in that space a lot uh, as a as a much younger writer, and I sort of haven't done as much recently, but, like, it was always something where, like, I, you know... I would I would be doing these things and and nobody else who I talked to would be like yeah I do that but then you know like things that I'd be reading in in classes or whatever would still be like very much you know like you you can't read like Stuart Dybeck without like being in Stuart Dybeck's Chicago or whatever 
Right. I love any kind of, you know, regional writing that isn't, I mean, no offense to New York City. I live in New York <laughs> um, or to Los Angeles, but there are so many other places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I when I read something that's set somewhere that I've never been and also somewhere that I'll probably never go, you know, some random place in Indiana mm-hmm. or Kansas, and it's just so like immediately transportive. Um, yeah, that in itself is magical, and then if you add an element of the of the speculative in some way that that makes me think that the author has thought a lot about um, like urban legends in their area or mm-hmm. mythologies, um, anything like that, it's just like yeah, that's the yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, one of the books that I think does this the best is not speculative in in any way but uh and i i don't even know if it's in print now um unfortunately the author passed away a couple of years ago but um kevin mcelvoy's the complete history of new mexico uh which is a, a collection of short stories but that are all you know set around the same area have a lot of overlapping um characters uh and it's just like you know, it's one of those things that's just very evocative of the place that it came out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, I I think that I would probably love it just as much even if I hadn't, like, actually gotten a chance to meet the author as it was. I got to know him briefly when I was an undergrad, uh, and he was just, like, an incredible person. But uh, n- neither here nor there, except that I was thinking about it the other day and I was like, I should tell more people about this book. Like it's really good. I'm adding it to my to read list. I like any kind of short fiction collection that's interlinked in some way. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of years back, Sabrina and Karina came out and that was really great. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Denver, and um, was just, yeah, it felt like you were visiting mm-hmm. <laughs> parts of the city that, you know, don't make it into um, advertisements mm-hmm. or have nothing to do with the dominant industry there or like the sports, you know, just corners that, that look yeah. all about. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's nice when anything does that. It's especially nice when like you get to, you know, like, I don't know, like you were saying, like New York feels kind of cliche in some places even to be like you know oh yeah you know that's the third character in my book is new york city or whatever which like you know fine great good like but also like if if that third character in your book is is like the same places that we've always seen in every other piece of media it's a little bit less transportive than if it's like you know like you're saying, like the these, you know, the back alleys, the dive bars, whatever. Yeah, I just I think constantly of the um, part in the film Lady Bird, where um, Lady Bird's teacher says something about how much Lady Bird loves Sacramento, and Lady Bird's mm-hmm. like, I don't love Sacramento, and the teacher <laughs> says like, Will you pay a lot of attention to it, or something about that, like paying attention, and I was mm-hmm. just like. Oh, yeah, you love what you pay attention to in most cases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was a, that was, a, I really liked just that way of thinking about it. And it made me think about what I pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, I'm, I'm going to be chewing over that for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen the film, but uh, I, I. It's good. Well, I, I'm not sure if it's as good as everybody says, but it is good. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> and it definitely made me want to visit Sacramento the way that reading Joan Didion makes you want to visit Sacramento. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I I have complicated feelings about Sacramento because it is so hot there. <laughs> That's what I've heard. I have a couple of friends who live there now, um, kind of oddly. They've both moved separately, but at the same time. <laughs> and like, I'd like to visit you. I'm sure it's a really cool city, but it seems really hot, even for like all of us Floridians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, it's nice. There's some really nice stuff in Sacramento. I do not spend most of my time in the nice parts because I have to go there for work 
and it's just being inside industrial things, uh, and where it is just overly air-conditioned and very loud, and that doesn't really, you know, lend you a good sense of the city. But, like, the train museum? A+. plus, Good trains. All right. Um, and trains. the history museum I've never actually been to, but I follow them on TikTok because they... At least for a while at the start of the pandemic, there was somebody from the, like, print shop there who was, you know, constantly showing off, like, old pieces of type and printing up random things on their, you know, 1850s print press. Uh, so, you know, good stuff. That is not how I spent my pandemic. I'm a little jealous. <laughs> No, I spent my pandemic watching that on TikTok. <laughs> um, you know, I, I mean, obviously the pandemic isn't like over, over yet, but uh, the public seems to have moved on. And this being not my favorite subject, I think we should move on from that. Uh, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, you, you mentioned previously having this book as you know something that went out on submission to 40-ish agents and uh kind of what that what that journey was like because like you know everybody I mean not everybody has the journey of like submitting to agents not everybody has the journey of submitting to anything but you know just because everybody has that journey doesn't mean that it's the same for every single person yeah. Um, so I was working on this project between 2016 and 2017. Mm -hmm. And it was the second like full length project that I had finished. And it was the mm -hmm. first one that I sort of um, tried out some of the typical writers tools like I found critique partners and I revised it extensively. And mm -hmm. I tried a couple of different formats. Initially, it had only one narrator, but the version that exists now has two narrators. It's split between two best friends, mm -hmm. um, finding out essentially the same information, but from slightly different directions. Oh, neat. Um, and so I consider it sort of like the the exercise in like the most trad of trad publishing tracks. Because mm -hmm. like you have your critique partners, you've revised it like four times, you research very seriously like who might be selling this kind of work you know you use all the tools that are available um, to people who are looking for agents and you send it out you have your doc your various documents you have your um cover copy and you have your first five pages and your first three chapters yeah and <laughs> all these different versions of like the same thing basically depending on what people want and right you, you check to see is there an email today um is, obsessively is one of the looking places, at query tracker yeah obsessively, obsessively looking at query tracker and is this the agent that you know after two months no response means no it's like there's a lot to keep track of mm -hmm. um but at the time there was a lot of um like contemporary fantastic young adult coming out that i really liked mm -hmm. and which is a trend that continues to this day it's you know it's not right. gone away in any real way and it is it's the kind of YA that I am drawn to. I like mm -hmm. some stuff that's almost real world, but with some sort of a bent, um, you know, right. good, like Maggie Stiefvater stuff and so forth. And so it seemed, it didn't seem impossible that I would be able to find someone who represented that kind of material. And I had mm -hmm. some very kind, you know, rejections. And I right, had yeah. a request to revise it and resubmit it, and that didn't go anywhere. And that was sort of like the final thing, especially mm -hmm. because my attention span um, for writing is like not Fair. what you need to make um, a career which mm -hmm. i've never wanted to have a career as a writer i'm a library worker and that's just how it is mm -hmm. um but you know for doing it in your spare time as like a serious amateur pursuit mm -hmm. your attention span i think really dictates what what you end up doing Right, because right. By the time I decided to retire this, it was like, well, I mean, I could try to revise it and like 
make it differently shaped and send it out again. But I had mm-hmm. gotten it really into writing romance, like adult romance, uh-huh. <laughs> which is completely different. Yeah, totally <laughs> different was, thing. I like... was really focused on that for like several years and, you know, again, did it very seriously. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it just kind of, it kept rolling and it's yeah. not something that I've ever decided to revisit or, you know, pull out of Google Drive and see if I want to do anything with it. Like I self-publish a lot of work now, I, but, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just there it's hanging out yeah yeah and like that's the sort of thing where like it, it's very much with anything you're submitting you have to like make a calculation at some point of like how much more effort do i want to put into it and like mm-hmm. you know very like it it makes a lot of sense like it's never i i try to never think of it as like giving up on a thing because like you're always you know, you learn things from that process, you, you know, you got to figure out, like, what things worked for you, I don't know, you know, I, I can't speak for you, but, like, I've, you know, had pieces where, like, I came out of it with, like, a very clear idea of, like, things that really work well for me, or, like, came out of it with, like, oh, this person is, like, a new critique partner who's, like, you know, I really trust their voice on it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I think the longer you submit work, um, regardless of what kind of work it is or where it's being submitted or um, what comes of it, if it never gets published, like, after a po- point, it's the major upside to to never really stopping is, for me, that it refines your taste mm-hmm. like sometimes you'll get a, a rejection that will just make you laugh because it's like well all the things you hated were things that i did intentionally yeah and were like significant stylistic choices and like this so you're you're telling me about things that i like mm-hmm. you don't like them that's fine but having those kinds of moments like i think is really important for writers because that is your taste being yeah. developed and yep. being able to recognize that in yourself, I think, is really important. And not just be like, oh, someone didn't like it. Maybe they're right about this. I'm like, they're not right about your semicolons. <laughs> you are right about your semicolons. <laughs> there's there's space for infinite opinions on semicolons within the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, that just made me think back to a rejection that I got. Fifteen years ago, maybe? Fifteen sounds about right. God, that's a long time. Pretty long time. Uh, But, like, this little short story that I wrote, I think, for a a class, because I was, like, I'd write things for classes. I already had built-in critique partners from that and then would just turn around and start trying to sell them. Uh, But wrote this story about somebody who was a furry and sent it out and and got a rejection from some market that was like, we only buy realistic fiction. Nobody wants to be an animal. And I was like, I can count five people I know personally off the top of my head you sir maybe need to open your eyes a little bit i mean leaving money on the table yeah as we all know at this point like the furries will buy what you're selling yeah (laughs) uh you know i never i never sold that i i gave up on it pretty quickly and that's yeah at this point it's 15 years old i'm afraid to even go look at it again necessarily but like you know these are the things that that happen and uh it's important like you know like you said the like sometimes you get a rejection that makes you laugh and like that's that's a bingo square right right there of like you know rejection where they just like i've definitely gotten rejections where i'm like oh they just don't get it where it was more just like i was you know 
young and willful and, and like, very, like, deflecting with anger, but there's definitely, you know, there's a difference between that kind of, oh, they just don't get it, and, like, the kind you're saying where it's like, these things that you hate are the things that I did intentionally because I love them. Yeah, um, you know, I would say the vast majority of rejections that I get are form, which is fine. That's my preference. Um, mm-hmm. Every now and then one will be personal, either in like a good or bad way. And then every now and then there's one where it will happen spontaneously. And it's mm-hmm. the one where like, we're at cross purposes, like this would never have worked. And now we know. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay. Like, every rejection is a win. Like, obviously, you know, uh, an acceptance is a huge, major, awesome win, but, like, every rejection, you're putting yourself out there, like, that's hard work and it deserves to be celebrated. It is. It's a it's a difficult habit to get into, um, but for me, at least, I think it has been true that the more of them you rack up, like, the less it stings. Mm-hmm. These days, yeah. it's like, eh okay, what's next? Like, do yep. I have anything lined up that takes simultaneous submissions? If so, then we'll send it away. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's definitely, like... And, like, we should say, you know, it, it never makes it so that it will never hurt. Obviously, there are, you're always going to get rejections sometimes that are like, oh, yeah, that actually, like... That one still is is rough, but it it definitely uh, the longer you do it, the less every single one of them feels like your world is ending and you're never going to do anything successful ever. <laughs> with with all of this rejection talk uh, going around here, I wondered uh, if we could talk a little bit about your alternate history novella, Little Nothing, which is coming out from Queen of Swords Press this July. Sure. Um, Yeah, so it'll be out mid-July from the lovely Queen of Swords, and it is an alternate U.S. history set, surprising no one. In Florida. In Florida, um, (laughs) during um, the lead up to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, I don't even remember how this happened, but I thought it would be fun to write like a longer form version of the poem, The Highwayman. Oh, uh uh-huh. Which is an English poem, and it's about, you know, English bandits and redcoats and that kind of thing. And I was like, well, I mean, redcoat's basically a gray coat, right? Mm -hmm. So how do I make this nice and gay? And so <laughs> the highwayman is a highwaywoman, um, and then the narrator is uh, Bess, the landlord's daughter, who mm-hmm. in this case her parents are innkeepers. Um, they own an inn that's sort of like you know the crossroads of their their little backwater uh, near the Everglades that's frequented mm-hmm. by lots of scoundrels. Um, and uh, the highwayman in question is is just the consummate weird horse girl, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I am also a weird horse girl. <laughs> And it was very fun to write um, the weird horse girl's long-suffering girlfriend instead. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh my god, these horses again? Because the the speculative element, um, the all element is um, that the horses in question are like a native breed of um, like a water horse that oh, kind of uh-huh. come from like Kelpies. So nice. they've got nasty teeth. They're a little bit fey, um, you know. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so the it's uh, just a, a rollicking backwoods good time <laughs> excellent a uh, very very important question about this in approximately how many beds does it have like more or less than only one <laughs> um well the girls share like a bedroom and they each have a single bed because this was the 1860s they had not mm-hmm. invented i don't think the the california king yet Fair enough, fair enough. Um, and I think it is established at some point that Bess is, like, a very rowdy sleeper. And <laughs> Johnny gets, like, sick of this and goes to her own bed. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You know, it's nice enough. to have your own bed to go to sometimes, and it's like a sleepover, right? Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, well, that that is uh, very exciting. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if you can, you know, obviously without giving too much away about it but you mentioned that 
it in some ways ties into other work, uh, including River's End, uh, that you've done in this sort of alternate Florida. Uh, can you, was that something that you set out to do from the beginning, or was it something that just kind of like came up in the middle and you were like, oh, actually? Well, River's End got away from me. Um, mm -hmm. I finished it and then I was like, I love this. <laughs> this is perfect. This is just what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote a novella that was actually about um, Callie after the end of River's End as an adult and dealing with um, some things to, deal, to do with her aunt, Mel, mm -hmm. who they excerpt. And um, I also wrote um, a full-length novel about Mel as a teenager in the <laughs> 90s. <laughs> and you can read that one because I, um, I, tr I try, gave it my, my college go um, mm -hmm. because I really believed in that book and I thought I could sell it. Um, traditionally, and I didn't, so I published mm -hmm. it myself because <laughs> it's fun. It's very like the craft meets Blue Crush. It's about like hanging out at the beach with your <laughs> codependent, evil best friend, and making bad decisions <laughs> and maybe right, a little light yeah. witchcraft. <laughs> um, How, and then I also we started all been writing. There? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a vibe that if all of, if we didn't live through it, that we're very attracted to. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, witches are having a moment <laughs> in pop culture, always. Mm -hmm. um, and I also wrote a lot of short fiction that I tied in either overtly or um, more covertly and kind of for myself. Mm -hmm. And some of those pieces um, I managed to place and I was always kind of surprised by that. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Um, including one, there's there's two that have the horses that are in Little Nothing, so you can kind of get a glimpse of them beforehand if you want. Um, one of them was included in the anthology Equus from World Weaver Press. Oh, neat. Yeah. And then the other one was published by Luna Station Quarterly. Um, mm -hmm. That one I, I thought was really fun because uh, you meet the devil. <laughs> Who doesn't <laughs> want to meet the devil? <laughs> I'm, I mean... You know, I, I I guess it depends a little. Like, are we talking like Lil Nas X Montero Devil, or you know, actually kind of more in that direction. It's like a very sassy, like um, Tim Curry kind of devil. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I can get not, with that. not like um, navel gazy Milton Devil mm -hmm. or like classic Christian Devil, who's not super fun. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for, like, Milton's navel-gazy devil, but also, like... <laughs> I do love I nice guy Lucifer. I'm a Milton simp. Like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the hard part about Milton is that they hadn't invented quotation marks yet, so you really have to be paying attention yeah, to know who's attention. talking. Yeah. That's why it helps to read it out loud. You do funny yep. voices. Oh my god. That's what I did. That's how I got through Paradise Lost in college so that I actually knew who was talking was giving everybody funny voices. <laughs> yeah. It's the only way. I highly recommend it to any college students who might be listening and are also English majors. <laughs> Listeners, if you're planning on taking a class on epics, a class on Milton, you know, whatever, this is the pro tip. That's my only advice, really. Yeah. I mean, I could probably come up with other advice, but, you know, that's, like, that's the most important piece of advice I could think of for reading Paradise Lost. Really good, just hard, especially when you're a college student and your usual reading time is after a day of classes and your war your room is warm and... The text is a little bit dense, and, you know, the next thing you know, it's an hour has passed, and you've lost your spice in the book, and, you know, all, all those. I, I was, when I was reading Paradise Lost, I was working in a restaurant, and um, I would, you know, I, whatever book I was reading for class, I would have, you know, up at the counter with me, mm -hmm. read between customers, and I remember my boss was like, Paradise Lost. Is that about Jesus? And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. 
I mean, uh. it's it's concerned with sort of. Yeah, I was like, I, you know, maybe you should just read it. Yeah, <laughs> you're not gonna. I'll read it to you. Yeah. By the meat slicer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> that epics class was a good class. Just thinking, just suddenly thinking back on it. Also, I glanced over and saw. I mean, not the same translation I was reading in college. I think we read the Fagel's Odyssey, but I've got the Emily Wilson Odyssey over on my shelf. Uh, I still haven't read it. <laughs> Although I think she announced an Iliad as well. Oh, fantastic. I, I want that if she's doing it because her Odyssey is great. Like, yeah, really, really I always, good. I always liked the Iliad more. But once they're both out, I'll be like, okay, we'll read both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, if she'll do the Aeneid, then I can have three of the four epics I read in that class all from the same translator. That'd be pretty cool. But, you know, I understand as a, a classic scholar focused in Greek epics that she wouldn't necessarily want to do a Roman epic as well, but... You know. I guess I never thought about whether Greek scholars have strong feelings about Virgil, but they probably do. Yeah. Probably. I, they probably have some feelings about the fact that Virgil starts off the Aeneid with, like, Homer was a little bitch, and I can do what he did twice <laughs> as well as he did in half the space. Which is uh... not a para which is which is not a direct quote. This is me paraphrasing both Aenea, uh, both Virgil and my my epics professor from college, who I cannot imagine him saying anything like that. But it's funny the, to imagine. The spirit is there. I'm yeah. sure that this, the spirit is intact. I, imagine a you know kind of balding, gray-haired guy, neatly trimmed white beard, uh, matches his socks to his tie. Uh, and is always in socks and sandals. Imagine him saying that. <laughs> Just leave that little treat there for everybody who definitely... Well, no. Some of my friends from college do listen to this, so, like, they they know who I'm talking about, but most of you have, have no idea exactly who it is, and that's fine. <laughs> I think I think if you went to an American university, you have met that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, Either. especially like if As you a grad did any sort of a professor. Yeah, if you took an English class, if you went to lib to a liberal to a liberal arts school, you'll have met this guy. How, depending on where you went to high school, maybe you met this guy in high school too. Like, I can't say. <laughs> um, so we're we're uh, sitting here right now, and I just heard this weird sound in the room, the podcast room, uh, and I'm wondering and this this blue police box showed up, I'm wondering if we can take a step into this time machine at this point and go back if there are any words of wisdom uh, words of encouragement that you would like to offer to a younger less experienced D. Holloway That's a really good question <laughs> Because, um, like most people, I think I started writing in high school and didn't really think about what that, what it means, mm -hmm. you know, and it just, it became a habit that I was in before I really thought about why I liked it or why I wanted to do it or what you can do with it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I guess I could, I would tell myself to be a little more intentional, mm -hmm. but also it's so hard to imagine myself as like an MFA. <laughs> so I think I made the right decisions ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I think younger people, like you can, you can say, you know, you can be serious about yourself, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You don't have to downplay it. Like if you feel compelled to make art, like you're allowed to explore why that is mm -hmm. and not feel self-conscious about it. Yeah. And to some extent you are also allowed to want grown-ups to take you seriously <laughs> mm-hmm yeah no absolutely and like that's something 
you know, I, I think that's something that's really important at every step. If you, like, whatever level of writing you want to go after, if you're going after that, like, I definitely, when I was in college, I went to college for creative writing um, and took a lot of English classes because that was part of it and got an English minor because it was two extra classes I would have taken anyway. Uh, but, like, if you, you know, if you go to through something like that, like, I was constantly, you know, people would ask me, you know, at the time, like, oh, what are you doing in college? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm getting a major in, do you want fries with that? And, you know, and that sort of thing, like, there's, it makes sense to be, like, to be on the defensive a little bit and to, like, you know, want want to preemptively, like, counter people's arguments of, like, oh, but you're never going to do anything with that. But also, like, be proud of, be proud of what you're doing. Like, whether, you know, whether you're writing it to stick in a drawer or writing it just to show your friends or writing it to try to get published or, you know, writing fan fiction, uh, which is just as valid as any of the other choices. Like, all of those things you don't have to be ashamed of and you, like, shouldn't be ashamed of doing that because that's hard work. Yeah, and I mean, the current moment is is just attacks from all sides on creative pursuit, whether professionally when not wanting to pay writers or... Mm -hmm. Um, just culturally and, you know, the devaluation of the arts in general. I mean, I'm a big fan of learning because it's fun. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say that my, my undergrad degree, you know, was anything other than just learning how to learn, mm -hmm. learning ways to think, practicing thinking, <laughs> reading things I wouldn't have normally read. Like mm -hmm. all these things are valuable in and of themselves. Yeah, And that's how I feel about writing, too, is um, like we were talking about at the beginning, everybody is on an iceberg of work that will never be published for some reason or won't see daylight or you don't have any intention of doing something, air quotes, mm -hmm. serious with that is still building your desire to make more and your ability to do that. Yeah. So, yeah. It pays its own way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, I think it's important to say, and, like, something I probably have neglected to say a lot on this, because, like, you know, I think the the vast majority, if not 100%, of folks I've talked to on this show have been people who have been published already in some extent, uh, or you know, are actively working towards publication, uh, or, you know, in, in some cases are, like, you know, have a debut novel coming out or whatever, and, like, that's their first, you know, big sale or whatever. But, like, just because, you know, we, we on this show approach that in a, uh, through that particular lens of commercialism... Uh, which I, like, I, I really don't want to put stank on that word, but, like, it's so important to, to know that, like, you can write things and never want to or intend to sell them, and that's just as valid. And, like... Yeah, totally. And, I mean, at the, the start of... By the time I was drafting and, and querying River's End, I had been submitting work since about 2012, so mm -hmm. about four years. Um, but that was, you know, the most, the furthest I ever went toward, like, traditional publishing. And for a mm -hmm. while, I thought that I could, could make it work. And um, for various reasons, you know, I moved away from that. And I think that, especially now, again, in the current moment, <laughs> with a lot that is writing against outsider art but mm -hmm. also just art in general like you oftentimes you have the capacity to do whatever you want 
all yourself. Like you right. don't have to be beholden to an editor necessarily, or if you want, you can swap with your friends, like building an independent writing community and being part of that is really something that I would suggest to anybody, regardless mm -hmm. of what, if you have publication goals, but just like knowing people who do similar things, yeah. knowing people who have overlapping skill sets, like being, being independent of the machinations of the big now three publishers is something yep. that will only get more important and also keeping a journal. Yeah. <laughs> I recommend keeping a journal, <laughs> which is also a type of writing and not a commercial one. Um, unless you have ambitions to be a memoirist, Yeah, but it's a different kind of writing and it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it is just for you. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, like that's, I, that's completely true. I never thought about it that way. I've, I've never been a consistent journaler. I was going to say journalist for a second. And I was like, no, that's a different thing. Also not a consistent journalist, uh, but, uh, or a journalist at all, really. Haven't done journalism in any way since, like, one or two classes in college, but neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, no, that, like, yeah, there's, there's value in all the, all the ways that you can create and all the things that you can do, and, like, that's really, um... Like you said, like, that's, it's okay to take that seriously. And in fact, like, it's good to take that seriously and, like, you know, be, defend that. Defend, defend your right to do the things you like doing. Yeah, um, that's, that's really why I think it's important for, like, like the rejections that make you laugh, like, kind of confirming what you suspect about your own taste. Like, I think it's mm -hmm. really important to develop your taste and your style not necessarily good taste because that's not a thing yeah. um or the right style mm -hmm. <laughs> but to just know you know in some deep part of you that like this story does what i want it to do i'm satisfied by it like that's mm -hmm. that's what i'm aiming for and i think that most people my age and probably most people who go to traditional schools have a lot of unlearning to do as adults mm -hmm. who make things because uh, I definitely ruined myself reading music criticism for a really long time. Oh, no. <laughs> and now as an adult, I have to be like, what kind of music do I like? Yeah. They're just like, you know, Chuck Klosterman just lives in my head. That's all I have. <laughs> no, it's not all I have. Oh, gosh. I'm just, I'm just remembering the person I was in, like, 2006, 2007, and, and the amount of... Uh, the amount of pitchfork reviews that I mis mistook for having an actual taste of my own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you have to iron the Hemingway out of you if you go to American schools and you want to write. You have to iron the pitchfork out of you. <laughs> yeah. if you like if you like pop music or rock music. <laughs> yeah. Uh, especially if you're into mid-aughts indie music, like my god don't just don't go on pitchfork at all to begin with it you'll be better off for it like yeah, they shit on some really great albums and loved some albums that i just do not care for revisiting like their bad reviews from the past I'm like this seems dishonest yeah you didn't like it then like do you actually like it now i don't mm -hmm. believe you like maybe but what's the point of this like if if everyone now agrees that this whatever this is is a classic album, then it doesn't matter what you have to say about it. Yep. Because your C minus review didn't change anybody's yeah. mind five years ago. Yep. Yeah. And like I I feel like the there's a wider thing to be said about that, which is like so most of my online socializing is in writer circles because I'm a writer and a podcaster and, like, that's what I do. But, like, I'm also in fandom circles that aren't, uh, aren't just full of writers. 
Uh, and it's very weird being in those spaces and realizing, like, realizing how author-pilled you are, where it's like, oh, this isn't actually, like, this thing that's, like, blowing up on writer Twitter right now, nobody else knows about it. And, like, yeah. you know, and, and and it's important to, like, have that perspective. Like, the same, you know, we can be, you know, serious, you know, genre people who shit on John Grisham or whatever, but, like, he's selling hella books. Yeah, this is why I think that, I mean, a lot of... Um... A lot of writers are library workers and vice mm -hmm. versa, but I think it is kind of the perfect pairing because library work will keep you very grounded in a mm -hmm. way that, it, like you said, getting author pilled if you're online a lot is so easy. And then I, yeah. you know, I go to work and I'm like, no, actually the average person is reading X, Y, and Z things. Yeah. Like the world is not ending. They're going to read it in three days and return it and get something else. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> everything has this huge moral weight. Yeah. Yeah. And especially, like, I don't know, it, you know, it's it's awards season right now. And, and, like, I'm always thinking about, like, oh, you know, this thing won the Nebula or whatever. And it's, like, most people don't actually even know what the Nebula Awards are. No. <laughs> they do like it is it is may the 10th today and uh everybody on writer twitter right now is uh having a good old time because of bigolus dickolus wolfwood uh who uh single and lovely masterminded the most sales in yeah. yeah, that was crazy to watch. It was like, Absurd, I mean, yeah, it's a really like, good book. <laughs> really, yeah, really good book. But it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, mo most normal people don't actually read novellas. Most, like, people don't, you know, go and, and obsessively look like, oh, this one, the Hugo and the Nebula, I fucking better read this now. Like, that doesn't mean anything is... to lots of people. <laughs> In this particular case, for me, the worst part is, like, it's really common now to see, like, book talk displays at libraries of, like, mm -hmm. you know, hot titles that are being discussed on TikTok. But even if I put this, <laughs> you lose the time war on a display, I can't, <laughs> I can't, like, frame it as recommended by Bigolus Dickolus. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> like, probably not. I would probably get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, no. So. It's, uh. Their impact is... That's a shame. <laughs> is, ...is simultaneously real-world in terms of sales, but has to remain online. Yeah. Not safe yep. for work. <laughs> uh, Kotaku did give it a little write-up today, though, which is nice. So, like, you know, people... Yeah. people Something who else are... did, too. Maybe Polygon? Yeah, I think so. Like, when it broke containment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is always hilarious when these things happen. Like, I'm... I'm I'm right now thinking about, because uh, I just finished reading Camp Damascus by Chuck Tingle, and thinking about the fact that I would not have believed you in 2016 if you had told me that in 2023 I would be reading a, you know, big trad pub debut horror novel from... Chuck Tingle, best known for weird dinosaur porn that rose to prominence entirely because of some right-wing trolls. And, you know, like, the, just the arc of these things is ridiculous. I did, um, did he publish Camp Damascus under Chuck Tingle? Yep. That's interesting. I mean, good for it's, him, but yeah. I feel like... If people read it, like, you know, if, if the average person encounters it at the library and is like, this sounds cool, I'm going to check it out. And then it's like, I liked that. Who's this author? Like, what is going to happen? I mean. <laughs> I'm going to have to be like, well, I'm sorry, we don't have any more of his books. Yeah. the Like, what I. And we won't be buying them either, probably. <laughs> the, the nice thing, at least, is like, A, 
a tingler is cheap. You can get a lot of tinglers for not a lot of money. B, you know, he does, like, the the jacket copy on the back does say, like, you know, this is who Chuck Tingle is, this is why you should know about Chuck Tingle or not. But, like, it's still, you know, it it is wild to me because I am in this place where, like, again, author-pilled. And, like, if I said Chuck Tingle to most people, they would at best be, like, weird gay meme porn. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, like... Not sure actu- what this name is supposed to suggest. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I mean, yes, but also no. And also, like, let me tell you, like, this is an incredible book. And, you know, it it has some good callbacks to the wider Tingleverse, but also it's just, like, you don't have to know about... It's the good kind of self-referential. It's not the bad Mm -hmm. kind of self-referential. But, yeah, listeners, uh, be on the lookout, because I I am going to be talking to Chuck uh, in a couple of months on this very show. So, uh, you know, spoilers. Uh, I'm actually talking to him tomorrow. So that's how time works. But yeah, like yeah, being being author pilled is wild and you need to know that not everybody is author pilled. That's the that's yeah. the lesson here. <laughs> I mean, definitely in um in addition to many other effects of like moving away from traditional publishing goals, like, you will definitely get less author build. Mm-hmm. <laughs> suddenly you don't have to pay attention to it as much. Yeah. And it's like, these days, partly because Twitter is now what it is, and partly because I've curated it, mm-hmm. um, sometimes stuff will trickle in, and I'm like, ah, oh, yes, that feels like the, the bad old days. Uh-huh. <laughs> paying too much attention to book Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, once it gets, like, third removed, you're like, uh, the average person would find this incomprehensible and therefore mm-hmm. it probably doesn't matter like to me yeah keep it moving <laughs> yep uh on on the on the subject of keeping it moving uh and also on the subject of things that matter to you uh is there anything else that you have out now or that you have coming down the pipes that you'd really like our listeners to know about um most of what is about to arrive is um, various pieces of freelance essay writing. Fair. Um, oh, a few years ago, I started being like, mm, I want websites to survive because I love websites. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm old. Websites are good, actually. So I'm going to, you know, find some that I really like to read. And um, eventually I was like, I guess I could pitch to them, too, for like <laughs> and music reviews, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did just sell a story that I didn't think I was going to sell, so that's good. Fabulous. <laughs> and that will be out in Lamplit Underground in June. Oh, cool. Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, also, speaking of things that are, well, speaking of things that are out now, hopefully, uh, unless you're getting, like, hella arcs. I mean, you're a librarian, so, like, you might be getting hella arcs. Uh, I wish I got Hella Arcs. We get a few. <laughs> publishers, send D Hella Arcs. Uh, is there anything that you have been consuming across the broader media landscape that you're excited about getting other people into? Um, I've been reading. <laughs> I finally picked up Sea of Tranquility, literally today, which is oh, nice. the new Emily St. John Mendel. Uh, it's very glass hotel-y. Mm-hmm. I like, because <laughs> um, I, I mean, I love all, I've loved all of her books, but I really liked The Glass Hotel, and it really made me want to take to the sea, mm-hmm. despite what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that'll be enjoyable, because she's always enjoyable. Um, the Station Eleven TV show was amazing. Um, yeah. And then I had to reread the book, obviously. I also just finished a great nonfiction collection called Monsters of Fans Dilemma. Oh, cool. And it's about how we, what we do with the art of monstrous men, usually, but 
mm-hmm. people who have who have done notably bad things and not um, necessarily suffered the consequences in the way that non geniuses would suffer consequences. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really it was a really interesting read. It was um, not prescriptive. It was very mm-hmm. subjective, which I appreciate. Um, I like to kind of, you know, do one type of book and then another type of book and then yep. keep myself rolling. I read a lot of picture books yeah. <laughs> at work and like, I need grown up books. Like I need something a little meatier. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm really looking forward to the new B.R. Yeager book, which is oh, called nice. <laughs> Burn You the Fuck Alive. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Jaeger is one of my favorite, um, just super out there, like indie horror writers. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, good stuff. Nice. Well, uh, listeners, as always, links to all of those things or pre order links, as the case may be, will be in the show notes. Uh, Finally, before we get going, uh, and I know this is a little bit of a uh, fraught question in uh this the year of our lord 2023 but d where can our listeners find you elsewhere um yeah i mean i am still on twitter for what that's <laughs> worth i don't think that it's super useful for for writers anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> but i am on there um i use instagram more for book promo you can find me there under my much older internet handle uh, menshevixen <laughs> And then also on Itch.io, which is where I have zines, short fiction collections, that kind of thing. Um, oh, fabulous. Excellent. Well, uh, yeah, listeners, be on the lookout for that as well. Dee, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Hillary. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, listeners, stick around next month uh, when... Emma Mieko Candon will be joining us on book tour, uh, and somebody will be joining us in the second half of June. I don't remember who right now. Uh, and then in the first Friday of July, stick around for an interview with none other than Chuck Tingle. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Lillian Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex for as long as the muskrat wills it. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.